Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa and other communities like it. I'm David Crummy. I'm Ryan Wozniak. And we're here to simply introduce ourselves and share what motivates us to produce this podcast in the first place. But first, some ideas about the structure of this podcast. Future podcasts will welcome listener feedback in the forms of letters and comments and so on, or if you're brave enough, record a voicemail message to be played as a segment of the show. It's great to hear your messages in your own voice. You can send your comments or voice recordings to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. That's MainStMesa at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook, MainStreetMesa, or our Tumblr, MainStreetMesa.tumblr.com. We're also going to be trying to bring on guests that will round out our own viewpoints and try and make our voice a bit more diverse and really well-educated, we hope. Yeah, that's the idea. And, and so David and me bring uh, a lot of viewpoints that have been formed over the years at our times at ASU in the program there, geographic sciences and urban planning and the architecture school and everything. And we've gone on to having our own careers and everything, but let's uh let's first just talk about what we're going to talk about today as far as just framing the conversation so you know what you're in for today and we hope that you stay tuned in because we're going to be talking about what is main street mesa what are our goals and then we're going to talk about us as provocateurs slash the podcast hosts of this (laughs) and then we're also hoping that we can connect with you on why and for whom we're making this podcast Obviously, your participation in this program would be very valued. To start off, one of the first segments that you're going to hear after this segment is we're going to dive into a book reading podcast that's about walkable cities, a great book authored by Jeff Speck. Let's not deviate from the program. We we already (laughs) outlined one, two, three, four. And so what is Main Street Mesa, David? The idea of Main Street Mesa is to bring the planning issues and And there I go, I use the term planning issues. I'm trying to avoid jargon is my other goal with this. The idea is to bring issues and comments about building what is a human-centered community? What is a walkable place, especially here in Mesa, Arizona? We have a lot of great infrastructure and we have a beautiful main street. We just finished some light rail going down all the way through to our downtown, coming through Tempe and Phoenix. Definitely. And we're about to take it to... Gilbert Road here. Construction just started this past month. And we have a lot of opportunities. Downtown Mesa was founded in the 1880s, and it's grown and it grew and grew in the 50s and 60s, a lot of post-war suburbs. We had some decline in the, the West Mesa area, and we're really building on a strong foundation. But the things that we've learned about from living in a car-centered area, short period of time where we've been car centered. Uh, We've learned some lessons from that. And we want to build a community that is more walkable, that is more minded around other people. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk a lot about cars in this program. Um, Walkable Cities is obviously one of those uh, books that take on uh, the challenge of designing around the car and challenging for both automotive needs and pedestrian needs. And there is a balance that needs to be struck. And at Mainstream Mesa, our message is going to be centered around a lot of that because the automobile is just one of these machines that dominates our landscape and dominates our lifestyles. And there's, there's a ton of repercussions that come from that. But in order to try to build upon this 
need to have this conversation, we need to establish some reference points and layer on with a lot of uh, discussion about everything that the automobile and the pedestrian touches as far as our built environment. That's, that's a buzzword. That's a terminology that planners throw around a lot basically meaning everything that we change about our cities to actually function for us. The built environment is made of trees, it's made of sidewalks, it's streets, it's curbs, what it does with its stormwater, where people live, where people work, where people play. Um, so all those things are our built environment and it's ways that we're manipulating that environment to serve us. I, I wanted to also interject that we're not having a conversation about being anti-car. We're having a conversation about being pro lots of different ways of getting around uh, with the idea that our communities come first and making sure our communities are safe for everybody. Mm -hmm. And and when we, when we design our cities to be people-centered, they're meant to be happy. They're meant to be healthy, creative, social, productive environments for people. And it's, it's those goals that is really the ideas that everything uh, that comes out of Main Street Mesa will touch in some form or fashion. And so um, we hope that, you know, this message is, is exciting to you, that you learned something, that we're, we're bringing a valued piece of information to your life. And with that, let's just kind of now start talking about who we are and how, how we mesh with this, <laughs> uh, this message. So, Ryan, what... What brought you to Mesa? So I came from the Detroit metro area. Actually, it was an inner ring suburb, Dearborn, Michigan, which actually the home that I grew up in was only a couple blocks away from Detroit city limits. To give you an idea of what this neighborhood looked like, the homes were small, the lots were small. There weren't front-facing garages. There wasn't that two-car garage dominant neighborhood that we find you know, throughout Mesa. What that does for my lifestyle growing up as a kid is that I had a plethora of kids my age whose homes were in very close walking distance to my own. And so that kind of helped form my value for walkable communities. And there were conveniences even as a 10-year-old that I could walk to. And back in Michigan, we had these um, interesting things that would, or interesting income revenue streams for a 10-year-old, which is depositing plastic bottles back to the store because when mom and dad got done drinking a bunch of soda, you had all this, all of a sudden you had this opportunity to cash in 10 cents each uh, bottle. So we would take these bottles and we'd go and we'd buy ourselves candy or another soda or whatever we wanted, a bag of chips. And that was a great way to like hang out with friends. And it was just a very walkable environment. So it sounded like you have a lot of independence as a kid too. Yeah, definitely. So you're not you're not trapped to mom's minivan when you're in a neighborhood like that. And also the park was within walking distance. The neighborhood bakery was in walking distance. So there was pizza shop. There was everything that a 10-year-old could really want. And I walked to school. I would walk other little kids to school. I'd be, you know, a 10-year-old watching out over a 7-year-old and making sure they got to school okay. So it was just this, this really great social cohesion in our neighborhood because of the fact that we weren't all separated with walls like you find throughout Mesa and everything. So it's just these built environment elements do inform how you live in a neighborhood. And it's just something that I learned through contrast of, of coming from an older neighborhood to a, a relatively newer neighborhood. And from my perspective, you know, 
the the home that I live here in Mesa was built in 1979. And that was a really new home back in the Detroit area. And I know for folks that growing up in Arizona, 1979 seems like an older home, quote unquote. But uh, that's just the, the nature of how Phoenix Metro has grown. When did you, you, did you live in Dearborn? So I did live in Dearborn, Michigan. So you lived, lived in Dearborn. So when did you leave Dearborn? I left Dearborn actually shortly after high school, uh, fell into another neighborhood, another entering suburb of Detroit, and then another entering suburb of Detroit. So I spent a lot of time in those first ring suburbs of Detroit uh, growing up. But it wasn't until 2007 when me and my wife made the move out to Phoenix Metro and established out here. One for her career as a teacher and me uh, pursuing actually a career of what I thought would be architecture uh, at ASU. Yeah. Yeah. So where did you get your undergraduate? I got my undergraduate here at ASU. I finished it up. Um, I had started actually at community colleges back in the Detroit area, working for an architect, thinking that I was going for architecture school, uh, eventually going to finish that out. And I had this strange idea that architecture was being too limited to just the building and the site. And I was going to reinvent architecture as like this broader concept of building communities and stuff. I did not know what planning was at the time. And it wasn't until I came to ASU and I took a, an intro to urban planning courses and the light bulb just went on for me. And I got truly excited that there's an entire field devoted towards making communities great and thinking beyond the site and the structure and thinking of terms of how you interact with people and build communities as part of the community, you know, not just in my own mind or on a piece of paper, but actually interacting with people and talking about what they want, what they need, and, and kind of going through that public process. And when I, when I realized that, I, was, I got hooked in, and it wasn't until 2012, 2013, which I actually finished wrapping up my master's degree at ASU. And then since then, I've been involved in municipal government and private sector consulting, and I learned a lot through working for municipal government as an intern and then eventually as a consultant. And it was really the consultant side where we would set up these neighborhood meetings and about a project proposal. And we'd reach out to the public and I got a sense of how people truly interact with a proposal that's going into their backyard. Now, another acronym that <laughs> planners love, you know it. You're, want, you're egging me on to say NIMBY, yes. but I prefer the term bananas, <laughs> which is NIMBY is not in my backyard, but bananas is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Right. Which I'm actually encountering a lot more than I am the nimbyism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and so like I, I get it, right? Because people are nervous. They're when when you see development happening adjacent to your property, adjacent adjacent to the the area that you've invested, you're nervous when you're not in control of what's going to happen adjacent to that neighborhood. So we have to be able to negotiate and talk with people about what really they need out of their community as their community evolves. And to me, I think that's the, the greatest challenge that there is. And that's part of what motivates me to be part of Main Street Mesa, because we're talking about what types of changes are valued and why even some of those counterintuitive aspects of how a neighborhood grows and evolves is valuable. That, that's a huge reason why I'm motivated to do this is because I want to engage with people. I want to talk with people and get beyond the there's there's currently there's this and then there's going to be that. And we hope that makes money. And what compromises do you want us to make? There's so much more 
that's involved in the conversation. And, and cities don't have a whole lot of time to engage with the community in such a rich level uh, to, to start laying uh, an informed foundation over how that community is going to evolve over time. So this is like one of those avenues for us to really engage with our listeners, our friends, our audience, whoever you identify yourself as, uh, hopefully a participant of this program. Um, but we're, we're really hoping that we engage with you and we can inform each other as to how we talk about how Mesa is going to evolve over time. So I, I, I want to go back because uh, your childhood sounds a lot like mine. So I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, which uh, I, I laughed when I took some historic preservation classes. They always, la- they always talked about, uh, oh, did George Washington sleep there? That's what makes it historic. <laughs> Annapolis, Maryland, uh, George Washington literally li- slept there. Um, it was the U.S. Capitol for a while back before, well, before Washington, D.C., and we had, I grew up in a, a ranch home that was on the outskirts. So mm-hmm. I had a whole 10 minutes walk to our, our city center from from our ranch house in the suburbs. David is doing air quotes if you can't hear that. I, I'm big <laughs> on the, 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 hand, the hand gestures just, just to show there because it really, really goes to the, um, the podcasting format. Uh, but I, it was Annapolis was uh, at the time a small town. I want to say it was less than thirty thousand people. Uh, we had the U.S. Naval Academy, but our town, the oldest buildings were built in the fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, and a lot built in the seventeen hundreds. Uh, and it was great. It was a city built before cars. And as a kid growing up, from as young as I can remember walking everywhere, playing in the street, riding bikes, getting in trouble with friends, all that great stuff. I didn't, I had friends that lived far away that rode a bus, but I want to say our schools had like four buses all together. Playing in the streets, right? I never see that in my neighborhood. (laughs) I never see it. There's not a basketball hoop that's being dragged out to the curb. Like I remember that, that was like one in every other day occurrence in my neighborhood. We would be dragging that basketball hoop out to the curb and taking up, you know, that space while there wasn't cars being driven. Of course, we'd stop and have to stop playing (laughs) when a car came about. But, you know, there wasn't so much demand there in the street where we could actually have a great game. Yeah, it's that, that Wayne's World car right game on it's amazing but you know what people say that kids don't play in the street anymore but i don't think that's true because my kids play in the street all the time um and we do have uh one of our neighbors has a basketball hoop that they drag out to the corner street and they're going around and so that it it does exist and there's a mentality that it doesn't Uh, for for reference ryan and i live about a mile away from each other uh so i did drive here (laughs) <laughs> uh, I should have ridden my bike. We'll get to that. That's a later episode. <laughs> but, you know, uh, my house was built in 54. It was uh, formerly an orange grove before that. Well, actually, it was a orange grove, and then it was an, an airport hmm. for a couple of years right after World War II, and then it was housing. And so oranges to airplanes to homes was the uh, from, from Bear Desert. So I moved here to Arizona in 95, so I was in junior high, and I went from sort of the walkable paradise of Annapolis to Phoenix, where I, as a teenager, as, as a newly minted teenager, as a 14-year-old, or however you are in seventh grade, I, I couldn't walk places. Right. Things were really, really far, and 
in middle school, it was still still okay. I could walk to most of my friends' houses. And then we moved to central Phoenix, and all of my friends from middle school lived 15 miles away. And everything was really, really far away. And at the time, I didn't really notice it. I would walk downtown Phoenix, and I would walk to the library. And, uh, you know, growing up walking, that's just sort of what you did. And so I tried to walk everywhere, and I really enjoyed the downtown Phoenix scene. It was before all of the cool stuff that's happening now. There was a little bit of cool stuff that was happening. But as soon as I learned to drive, I would borrow my parents' car at every opportunity because all of my friends lived 10, 20 miles away. And, um, and and it felt like in all directions. So from Glendale to East Phoenix and, and North and South Phoenix and, and North to, well, it's just Phoenix. <laughs> and we just drove. So high school was a time of driving Phoenix City streets. And now that I have a high schooler now, oh my goodness, I don't want him driving. <laughs> um, and he has no interest of driving. Well, he does have no interest in driving at all either. Which is which should be a, another topic for another podcast. <laughs> we really should have your son on as right? a guest. It would be an amazing little conversation of how it, this has gone from a symbol of freedom to a symbol of, nah, I'd rather be doing something cool with my friends or on technology of other it's, sorts. It's just one more thing he has to learn to do. It's, it's an obligation. It's a, it's a thing that has to be done. It's not fun. And I love driving, just not commuting. I hate oh, commuting, yeah. but I love driving. Like, give me, give me a country road or, oh, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, but in college, uh, I went to the University of Arizona, uh, actually the Arizona International College, AIC, which was a school of U of A. And it was, at the time, intended to become Arizona's fourth university. The idea was to incubate it inside of U of A and then find a new location and create a liberal arts college for the state of Arizona. Hmm. And so it was actually a fantastic university. And of course, Tucson is a very walkable city. Um, A lot of pre-United States development. Um, It was a Spanish city and a colonial city long before it was part of the United States. And a lot of its prime development was in, was pre-World War II, pre-common ownership of the car. And so development of freeways didn't really happen. And so most of the opportunity, and partially because it was a college town, really easy to get around on a bike or a car, lots of great food, lots of little community spaces, a lot of bars. Do you find that that was helping you harken back to the days of your walkable youth? You know, it really did. And I, Tucson, I feel, embraces the desert a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, they really find the desert to be beautiful. And that's, I think, the first time I fell in love with the desert. What is the desert? How does it feel? And how does it feel to have, I like to call it like a Sonoran desert urbanism, that I'm looking for a Sonoran desert urbanism. How do we live in the desert, but still live as a community and not be too hot? And then I got an opportunity, um, I want to say it was my junior year, I applied for a grant through the NAFTA, oh, I don't really remember what it, what the, the full name was, but it was a NAFTA exchange program where I got a grant to go live in Guanajuato, Mexico for a semester and take classes in uh, Spanish, in Mexican culture, literature, history, 
and basically live in Guanajuato. And that changed my entire perspective because growing up in Annapolis, which is a real walkable town and very colonial in its development, small streets that they fit cars into, Guanajuato is built in a valley. And its heyday, its biggest heyday, was in the 1600s, when it was, at the time, the second richest city in all of the Americas because of the amount of silver that was being pulled out and sent back to um, Spain. And as a mining town, everyone walked everywhere. And, well, that's all you had, right? (laughs) You couldn't do anything but walk or take a cart. So how do they live today? And so today, because of the way that and as a rich town, they built a lot of great buildings. And so there's a lot of buildings that are 1700s, 1800s, and um, early 19th century. And they couldn't fit cars in because they had a huge, they called them callejones, which means alleyway. Hmm. And they are tiny, maybe six feet across, and they go up the hills in between all the houses. And so there's literally no way to bring cars in. And... In the world war after World War II, the they did want to bring cars in because they were starting to see a lot more cars coming in, but they're a mining town. So how do we solve problems where there is no roads? We don't tear down buildings, we dig underground. Really? And so they have a series of, of tunnels and underpasses and byways that go practically under the town all over to move cars. And but for the most part, they have on the periphery, they have a circular road that goes around the entire town, and that's where you leave your car, and <laughs> you walk home. And you, for your day-to-day life, you don't need a car at all. In fact, it's a pain in the butt. Right. Um, so coming back to the United States after a semester abroad, I really got to see how growing up in Annapolis, coming to Phoenix, and then the, my time in Guanajuato, I got to see how truly different cities had been built just based on their their era and how much more of a community it felt like to be in Guanajuato because I got to see people every single day that I passed on my way to school. Uh, It's a city of hills, so I literally walked uphill both ways. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I saw um, people that I probably will never know their name every single day for five months and that doesn't happen here in phoenix uh in mesa in the valley but it it can and the the level of community and collaboration and uh, what's the word serendipity that you experience running into people in the the hurly burly of daily life Mm -hmm. to steal jane jacobs words is is amazing and so coming back, I, I then started teaching, uh, taught in South Phoenix, and then um, decided to go to ASU for a master's in urban environmental planning and got a job, a part-time job, working in a charter school as a classroom assistant while I could go back and finish my master's. That's when I, I came to Mesa and fell in love with Mesa. The main street, the, the historic downtown that really did have its heyday sort of before and after World War II but the, the infrastructure was there. The buildings were already there. And all the development had happened. And then when the freeways came and sucked everything out, mm-hmm. uh, the buildings were still there. And now we get to build on that again with light rail. And 
we see that there is a community that happens and people really want to live in places like that. Yeah, and it's great diversity and, and contrast to, to everything else that's available in the in the not only Mesa, but in a lot of the valley. So I really think that that's, uh, that's an opportunity that we can capture on because of the fact that it's truly a different context. The fact that light rails come through on that main street, that main street's just ready and, and, and um, poised to really take off and be, and come back to come back alive. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the way that I like to put it, I actually steal the terminology or thought from mayor Scott Smith, but we really need to think about downtown Mesa and the areas around it from main street out because it really is main street is the heart of Mesa and downtown Mesa. That area is the heart of Mesa. All of our almost completely locally owned. We have beautiful historic homes built in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s in that area. We have a lot of vacant land. We have a lot of places that can be built on. And we have right now the demand from seniors who don't want to live out in the middle of nowhere and have to drive everywhere, especially given the idea that they may have to be giving up their car. And they want to be around people that want to walk too. And then we also have the the push of the the so-called millennials. Yeah, the millennial bubble. We'll get to that for Jeff Speck. Which which we're the end of it. We're we're the old people of the millennials. (laughs) Um, And the front wave. (laughs) Yes. That that all coincides in a place like downtown Mesa, in a place like Main Street, where we get to steal the Jane Jacobs idea. And St. Jane Jane Jacobs, we should call her. (laughs) She's the uh, sort of the... uh, Patron saint. The patron saint of urban planning uh, through her book, The Life and Death of Great American Cities, uh, which is really a readable human account of what makes great places work. And we should mention, if you're not familiar with Jane Jacobs, she was not an expert by any means. She just was a truly... Uh, invested generalist who just went out and observed how her city functioned and really became and heavily invested in what she loved about Greenwich Village in New York City. So hats off to her. And everybody has that capacity to fall in love with the place that they live and become an, become an advocate for how that place should, what should be maintained about it, what's not working about it. And so that's part of what Mainstream Mesa is about, is this opportunity for us to advocate for what we love about Mesa, what we think should change about Mesa, and how it should grow going forward. And so when it comes to our role as advocates in this program, I, I, there's one thing that I, as some, because of my background and because of my professional background, I'd like to establish uh, right now in this podcast, make sure that it's very well uh, laid out, that my role as a professional planner in the city of Maricopa is vastly different than my role here as uh, a member of Main Street Mesa, because I'm advocating for my community here in ways that I do not have uh, available to me is not my role in the city of Maricopa. I serve the residents of Maricopa and I serve the the elected officials of Maricopa, but I'm not beholden to that here in Mesa and I can just speak as a person. So that's a great question that you you almost answered, but let me ask the question directly. What does a planner do? (laughs) Well, so I've been at this for quite a few years now, going on five years. 
uh, between my starting uh, little putzing around at a, in a small municipality on the outskirts of the Southeast Valley to getting more involved as, as a consultant, working with a land developer, which they are the folks who actually hold on to the pieces of land as, as something valuable. And they're in a, in a negotiation, a compromise basically with the public on how how is there this win-win-win situation that's going to come out of what they're proposing and what the public wants and what the, the moment of now represents. Uh, presents. So those are those are the the factors that that are all weighing out there. And as somebody who works in the private sector as a planner, you're trying to help navigate the what's politically feasible, what what the doc, what the recorded documents and the recorded public will has said should happen and and uh, having some foresights and, and to navigate that uh, process with the developer and and come out with at the end with something that's going to to better the community, to offer something of value and, and, and improve people's quality of life and offer something that's that's not there currently. So as a, a planner, how do you know what the community wants? Okay, so that's a great question for the role that I'm in now. So today, I don't work in the private sector. I work in the public sector. I work for a, a small municipality, the city of Maricopa. You know, it's a 25 minute drive. <clears throat> it's a 25 minute drive from the edge of Phoenix. It's a 30 to 35 to 40 minute drive from the airport. But there's this vast <clears throat> desert, uh, undeveloped part of the Gila River Indian community that is a decent stretch from the I-10 down to you get to the city limits of of Maricopa, and so the distance has this perception of being farther than what it actually is. And that's both a, a bit of a challenge and an opportunity, but we don't need to get into all those details today. Basically, the folks of Maricopa have chosen to live there because one, there's a lot of new housing, affordable new housing. They most likely work in the Chandler or uh, Awatuki region. And so the commute's manageable. It's not great. Um, but they've chosen this quiet suburbs um, because the market kind of has lent itself to that. And so working with people into what Maricopa should evolve to be is a very interesting challenge because while there was the, the, the market mechanisms in play, uh, you know, the, the affordability factors, the new housing factors, the, this new community with a nice looking park, all weighing into what people value about Maricopa, they also want Maricopa to grow up and become its own city. So they don't have that 15 mile stretch to the desert to have to commute through in order to get to something. So uh, I guess the question I was trying to get at was actually a lot more general Okay. as a planner, okay. as, as a, a municipal planner, planner as okay. a city planner, as the, the title job in any city, how do you, the planner know what this community wants, what the citizens want? Okay. That's a, that's a great question. Maybe we should just back up and answer that all over again. So, yes, um, the the planner of any city has a few hats to wear. A planner needs to both have a hand in what the public wants and having public meetings that are outside of the necessary, the pressures of a political decision to be made today and really thinking long term about what are the goals and how do we meet those goals long term. So there's the long-term questions about what what does quality of life mean to you? What's missing? What do you value? Uh, what's the economic prospects? What what's the economic uh, or the 
the job prospects look like in the area and how does that match up with the the skills that people have in your city. And so you're always trying to to find the the right footprints and the right placements and the right opportunities geographically um, to to come out with something that makes sense. So you have this long-term so, goals. So I'm, I'm going to stop you. Okay. How do you, the planner, know what the community wants? So you end up creating this long-term plan, right? Who? The Okay. <laughs> this is a very you, tough you question. See where I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going. Though. This is a very tough question. Yes, and and so yeah, the planner does help pull things together, but he doesn't necessarily make decisions. He's listening and informing, and it's this iterative process of going out to this community and hearing what they have to say and taking notes closely and going out to this community and seeing what they have to say and then bringing that back to your civic leaders and your advising bodies, and you have to keep crunching away, and you end up coming to a document that ends up actually going to become formally adopted through a public process. And And what's that document called? Based on Arizona revised statutes, laws, every city in Arizona has to have a general plan. It's called the general plan. I know. It's very <laughs> ugly, <laughs> non-descriptive term. Essentially, it is that long-term, that long-range vision that has to encompass a number of elements that are all written into law based on what the housing looks like, what the economic development goals are, what the environmental and and, and, uh, conservation goals are. There's a number of goals, and it really depends on how big your city is and how complex uh, the the issues are of your city as to how comprehensive that general plan needs to be. So what I'm I'm hearing, though, just to to summarize or condense, as a city planner, your your job is to talk to citizens, talk to the community, pull them or ask them or have meetings to discuss what are your long-term goals, bring those back, use your knowledge and research and background as a planner, someone who studies how cities work, what works best in both a community sense and a health sense and a economic sense, roll those together, talk to development officials, and then talk to the elected officials that ultimately get to make those goals with the knowledge that you base and pull that together through something called the general plan. And then we also have sub area plans or community plans. A lot of cities, plans. yeah, a lot of cities, yeah, will end up creating the general plan that is then a framework for a lot of other planning that needs to occur. But it all feeds back to the general plan and holds the general plan's hand in some kind of way. So those sub areas that might be identified in the general plan end up establishing goals that then planners use to justify their work on behalf of the citizens that say, no, the citizens as overall throughout the city said that this is an area that has such special needs that it needs special attention and special planning efforts. So in Mesa along along Main Street, we have two primary sub-area plans, primary plans that we focus that tie mm-hmm. into the general plan, which is general, mm-hmm. which is the West Main Street area plan and the Central Main plan which uh, spent years developing both of those and many, many meetings, dozens and dozens of meetings for each plan. But that, that brings me to the next question. Mesa's really big. Mesa is 130 square miles, almost a half million people. Uh, we're bigger than Atlanta and Orlando and St. Louis. We're bigger than St. Paul, cities you've actually heard of. Right. Are we going to talk about all of it? 
So there's definitely opportunity for any part of Mesa to get excited and, and, and capitalize on some of the ideas that we talk about in Main Street. But by primarily, this Main Street corridor is something that doesn't even obey City of Mesa boundaries, right? The light rail connects Tempe to Phoenix to Glendale. And so what this light rail corridor does is it creates this linear energy that's just going to flow through the heart of all of our cities and bring together a lot of walkable, uh, alternative commutes, sustainable commutes, opportunities for people. And it should really take on a life of its own um, and, and, and really blend together the energies that are happening between our sister cities. The light rails actually may be a new component, but Main Street itself has been the connector between these cities for a hundred years. Because before light rail, it was Main Street and Apache Boulevard and Van Buren and Grand Avenue. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the US 60 before the, our freeways were built. And because of that, this was the lifeblood. This was the main artery between Mesa and Tempe and Phoenix. Right. And it's been the stressed way, over time, though, hasn't it? Right. We, we, we did run a little bit of time between like 1960 and today where it's been stressed. You know, but if we take a look at Main Street, and I, I guess what I, what I wanted to say is that this is really a first-ring suburb. Mm -hmm. You know, downtown Mesa, the areas we're looking at, these areas all developed sort of both pre-war, pre-World War II, and a little bit after. And then the grand experiment of air conditioning and, and sprawl took over. Sprawl is one of these terms that we use. Oh, yeah. Planning, what right? in the world is sprawl? Right. So sprawl is the, that distance that ends up becoming easily maneuvered by car uh, to end up making for, for sizes of properties that you wouldn't have had pre-car. That 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 is in a nutshell what sprawl is, right? But it but there's so much more to that it's because of the influence of the car. And we uh, as planners, we were we get our authority as planners too from this this legal structure of public health and welfare and safety. And one of those concepts that end up pushing all these things further apart and distance was the concept of zoning or, con or conventional zoning. And that's a topic for another. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> so we don't need to evolve so, into all that. But essentially, those separating of uses end up creating vast distances between places. And the car was a great tool to bridge those distances. And it just, we became more and more dependent upon it. And the all the costly infrastructure in the streets uh, and more and more linear feet of sewers and water lines and electric lines and everything that came with all this distance ended up evolving and, and, and becoming what we know today as quote unquote sprawl. Which is very expensive. So what I want to talk about in this or what I'm hoping we talk about in our podcast is that we talk about Mesa and these first ring suburbs, I've heard it called the donut of disconnect. We're neither downtown nor are we the brand new suburbs where everyone likes. You know, we were built in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. And that area doesn't just exist in Mesa or Tempe or Phoenix. There are actually nationally a lot of communities that are are dealing with the issues that we are, yeah. which they're not necessarily declining neighborhoods, but we're not seeing huge reinvestment. We are a little bit in Mesa because of the light rail, but uh, Tempe had the light rail come through in 2007, and there's portions of uh, what Main Street is called in Tempe, Apache Boulevard, that have completely been missed by development. And now here we are, maybe maybe 10 years later, 
and we're starting to see some. But what does that mean for the communities, the people that live there, the people that have lived there of all socioeconomic backgrounds? Our schools have seen disinvestment. Uh, A lot of people have gone elsewhere to look for better quality schools. That's led to some struggling there. Our healthcare systems need a lot of help. And of course, just finding fresh food that isn't really, really far away. And those are all issues that aren't just in Mesa, but Mesa is our framework for for having this discussion. Yeah, and we, we hope, I, I hope that it's relevant to... Yeah to everywhere that has these issues. Yeah, a lot of places are going to identify by the same terms that you just laid out. It's just, it's crazy how much uh, of this donut effect has affected a lot of metropolitan areas. What we should do now is to stop our introduction. We're going to go back to a lot of these concepts in future podcasts and get people that know uh, more or have a better diversity of view so we can actually dive deep in a lot of these concepts. And they're part of our participation elements, right? So if if our people that are participating in our podcasts want to become guests, want, want to dive in and be part of this podcast, by all means, do so. We want to incorporate as many people into the fold as we possibly can. Yeah, there's a lot of issues that have a lot of different perspectives that we want to get those perspectives and, and discuss them and, and get it out there. Uh, but that leads us to what's next. Uh we have a big thing we're going to do. It's called a book club. It's a book club. Book club. Woo! What book are we talking about? Everybody raved about this back when it came out in 2012. It really started to, I think, uh, make waves by 2013 when people heard about how easy it is to read. It is by Jeff Speck, title of the book, Walkable Cities, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. And it's really a very easy read. It's, it's not written for the expert planner. It's really meant for a general audience. And he has this great way of weaving in all of these observations and studies that have had happened over the last five to 10 years and really boils it down to a really easy, great read, a great piece of advocacy actually for walkable urbanism. Walkable urbanism is, is a wonky way to say human-centered cities, places where people are the center first before we talk about moving two tons pieces of steel and other things. Like we have to think about how do we want to live and how do we live as a community? And there's a great a number of tools that help us get there. And we're going to break down all of these tools through the course of this podcast. And it's just not me and David. It's going to be bringing in other people into the fold and helping us explain this message to you as well. So as this discussion evolves and everything. David, how can people tell us more about what they want to hear and respond to what they're hearing today? All right. So first thing before we get to the book club, you can always send us an email, mainstreetmesa at gmail.com. So mainstmesa at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Main Street Mesa, all spelled out. You can find us on Tumblr, mainstreetmesa.tumblr.com. And we should be bringing all of those things together. The very next thing you can do is go out and buy this book. Go to your library, see if they have it. Go on uh, your library's digital services and see if they have the audio version that you can get for free. Or just go to your local bookseller, your local bookseller. Local. (laughs) Or you can go to, you know, that famous one that's on the internet too. And, and grab this book. There's a paperback copy. There's an audiobook version. Audiobook. If you've got long drives like Ryan, and you're, <laughs> you can go listen to that on your way, way to work every morning. 
grab the book and we're going to take it a couple chapters at a time. We've broken the book up to about 30 page sections and we're going to talk about each piece. We're looking forward to your input. Uh, and so if once you have the book, open it up, start reading, and we're going to read the first three chapters. And not even that, not even the first three chapters. Yeah, it's just like a prologue. Uh, the first chapter, which is called A General Theory of Walkability. And then the, the third chapter, uh, Walking, the Urban Advantage. And we're going to take a look at each of these. We're going to talk about it in depth with some great guests. We're going to have a diversity of people from across the valley, not just Mesa. People that are professional planners. We're going to have people that are professionals in the health fields. And we're going to have people that just live in the area. And this concept is new. And we're going to talk about it. And we look forward to having your input. And that's all we have for today. Yeah, it is really uh, great uh, to be part of this. I'm glad that if you're tuning in that you've made it this far. I'm glad that we haven't bored you to death. Uh, <laughs> and and hopefully this just gives you a little bit of a valuable insight on where me and David are coming from. And we look forward to having you on for more podcasts. And with that, I think we have a quote from Jane Jacobs. Well, before we get there, oh. I want to say join us online on Facebook and Tumblr, Main Street Mesa. Email us your comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. Our, our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and recorded by David Weirs. We'll leave you with a reminder from Jane Jacobs. Cities have the capability of providing something for everybody, only because and only when they are created by everybody. Awesome. See you guys later.